Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley, and we begin with breaking news this morning. A Pakistani International Airlines flight has crashed in a residential area of Karachi. Pakistan's aviation ministry say there were more than 100 people on board the flight PK8303. I want to get straight to our Richard Quest now. Richard, great to have you with us. Awful images at this stage. What more do we know about what happened? Well, the flight was on its way from Lahore to Karachi. It was a commuter flight when, according to the reports, and one always very hesitant at this particular point, it's an Airbus A320. Um, it's a 14 years old, which is not a particularly old and it's not particularly new for, a, for any sort of commuter plane that does workhorse routes like this would have been. And according to the early reports, and we take them with a certain degree of, um, of caution because you obviously have to wait for the black boxes to be found and more details, but it would appear that the plane tried to make an approach to the airport for whatever reason, the landing gear had not extended. The plane did what's known as a go-around. It was at a low level, and if you look at the pictures uh, and you look at the radar scope, it does appear that that was you know, because it had, did not have height. The, the, the pilots are then believed to have made a mayday. There are some suggestions of loss of power, but we don't know. And, the, and then the plane crashed uh, and the, the way into the residential neighborhood, as you can see. So there are a number of facts which require verification and confirmation, and then the picture builds up. But the, the headline, if you like, is the plane was at probably one of the riskiest parts of flight. Actually, it is the riskiest part of flight, which is landing. There would appear to have been some form of issue with the landing gear and the plane then, uh, then, then crashed uh, after it had done a go around. I mean, this is an area of Karachi that we were just showing in, and you just mentioned the residential area. It's, it's clearly populated. There's lots of buildings. What do we know about survivors, Richard? Or is it just too early to tell? I'm taking... I'm going to take this extremely cautiously because the latest numbers suggest that there might have been some survivors, but we don't know the the confirmation. And you you have a computer screen uh, and the latest wire copy in front of you since I came down to, to, to come on air. So if you're seeing something different, please feel free to update my information. Um, the plane, let, let, if we look, Pakistan Airlines, PIA, had only just started flying again uh, because after the coronavirus um, pandemic had forced it to stop. This particular 14-year-old aircraft was either on its first or second flight. It had either gone into service yesterday or it had just come back into service today. Now, that will be 
an issue. And the reason it will be an issue is to see how these planes were maintained since the airline stopped flying back in, in, in late March. None of the facts, what, what I, I, I guess we're going to discover here, is that no individual fact is going to be conclusive. So it will have been, if the landing gear hadn't deployed properly or extended properly, they should have been able to do X. So we'll want to know why. If they hadn't been able to land or were troubleshooting something, we'll want to know why they did a particular action and not another action. What we will be aiming to do, I mean, obviously, the first and most immediate part of this um, is obviously the, the finding of any survivors and giving the proper treatment. Thereafter, obviously, the proper uh, treatment of those who perished. Then you're looking for the black boxes, two of them, the flight data recorder, the cockpit voice recorder, the low altitude of this incident, um, Julia, and the nature of this incident gives me great hope that both of those devices will be found and will be found in good condition. They will explain the landing gear, they will give reasons for any mayday, and they will give the full picture. Yes, and help us understand what happened here. Richard, thank you so much for your insights there. Uh, Richard Quest, of course, and we will continue to bring you any further details as we get them throughout the day here on CNN. For now, the whole world is nervously watching the latest developments from China too and the National People's Congress. The reaction, I think, is concerned and you can take a look at this for a few reasons. China abandoning its growth targets for the year amid the COVID-19 battle and unveiling $500 billion worth of new stimulus for the economy. It's a start, of course, but is it enough? But I think the more immediate concern news that the Chinese parliament readying a sweeping new national security law against Hong Kong, overriding freedoms that distinguish the territory from the mainland. Take a look at what we saw from Hong Kong stocks overnight, the steepest drop in five years today. We also saw pressure on Chinese stocks too. Banks with strong footprints in Hong Kong like HSBC and Standard Chartered also falling as well. Shares of luxury brands like Dior, LVMH, that have big footprints in Hong Kong as well. As you can see, seeing a bit of pressure there too. What does it mean for the rest of the world? Well, US stock futures were down sharply earlier. We're seeing a bit of a turnaround, essentially trading flat at this moment. President Trump promising a strong reaction if those measures are passed. Plus, a bill has been introduced in the US Senate that would sanction officials who further threaten Hong Kong's freedoms too. All right, let's get right to the drivers and all the details from Hong Kong. As I mentioned, China's National People's Congress set to pass a sweeping new security law for the territory this week. The legislation aims to control political dissent and put an end to pro-democracy demonstrations. Ivan Watson joins us right now. Ivan, I saw one opposition lawmaker in Hong Kong said this is the end of Hong Kong as we know it. What more details do we have and what further reaction there? This certainly feels like a pivotal turning point for this city. Uh, and I think it's important to stress how different Hong Kong is from mainland China as a result of uh, a quirk of colonial history and bilateral treaties when it was handed over from Britain to China. Until 2047, it was supposed to maintain a degree of autonomy from the single part of ru party rule that exists in mainland China. And as a result, 
Here in Hong Kong, the more than 7 million people who live here are free to worship however they want. Uh, they're free to stand out on the street and criticize the government or write whatever they want in a newspaper or say what they want. And the internet is open and free here. The Facebook and Google and, and all of these uh, applications and social media platforms that are banned on the mainland of China, just a, a short distance to the south, here you can use them freely. This introduction of this proposed national security law by the National People's Congress, according to senior Chinese officials, would include seven clauses aimed at preventing, stopping, and punishing violations of national security, would criminalize treason, secession, sedition, and subversion against the Chinese government, would establish a legal system and enforcement mechanisms for enforcement. The government would be obliged here in Hong Kong to carry out a national security education there would be the ability to set up national security agency presence in Hong Kong, in other words, kind of secret plainclothes police here, and it would criminalize secession, sedition, and subversion against the Chinese government. The Chinese government and members of the, the Hong Kong administration here are justifying this in response to more than six months of increasingly violent protests uh, that racked the city prior to the coronavirus pandemic. Meanwhile, critics of this, as you mentioned, are calling it the end to the Hong Kong as we have known it since the handover of 1997. Take a listen. I just want to say to the international community that this is the end of Hong Kong. This is the end of one country, two system. Make no mistake about it, that Beijing, the central people's government, has completely breached its promise to the Hong Kong people, a promise that was enshrined in the Sino-British Joint Declaration and the Basic Law. Chief Executive there has come under fierce criticism for, one, not mediating, not providing any solutions to the situation, in fact, criticised for causing the protests that we've seen and saw for many months before the pandemic. What now, Ivan, what response from the Hong Kong government and what are the protesters saying in response? Well, look, I don't think it's any surprise that Carrie Lam, the chief executive effectively appointed by Beijing, has embraced this development uh, and is in lockstep with the uh, Communist Party in Beijing, saying that the, the protesters posed a national risk. Now, the foreign ministry, the liaison office of the Chinese central government, have said, look, the freedoms of press and assembly and speech that Hong Kong has enjoyed, they will not be affected at all by this. And I think it's hard to really believe that 100%. If you've spent any time in a police state, you do not have freedom of speech. That may exist written down somewhere in law in mainland China. But the fact of the matter is the moment I show up with a camera just 50 miles north of here and try to film somewhere, people will stop me. They will check my documents. If people speak out against the central government in China, there's a good chance that they will disappear mysteriously and be punished as doctors who spoke out about the early days of the coronavirus pandemic were chastised by the security forces here. The introduction of this measure, bypassing Hong Kong's well-established legislative council, suggests that those types of methods will come home to roost here in Hong Kong. And if you want an example of the climate of fear that has just suddenly sprouted up here, one Hong Konger I spoke with said suddenly his WhatsApp group dried up. Now, WhatsApp does not function without a VPN 
to the north of the boundary in mainland China, but also it suggests that immediately there are Hong Kongers who feel what they message to each other, presumably in privacy, could suddenly become uh, something that could be used against them by the security forces, which is what happens in mainland China with its incredible culture of censorship and complete intolerance for any form of dissent whatsoever. So the perception Julia? is that the one country, two systems is already gone by inference and two systems becomes one and you have to behave accordingly. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that update there. Not the only thing coming from this National People's Congress. The Chinese government is not issuing another economic growth target for this year at the National People's Congress. But Beijing has announced a $500 billion stimulus plan in an effort to create 9 million jobs. The official urban survey recently showed an unemployment rate of 6%. But many economists say the real number is likely much higher due to the pandemic. David Culver is live in Beijing for us. David, we only have to look at what we're seeing elsewhere around the world and the impact of the shutdowns to look at that number and think it doesn't make sense here. But what are we hearing more from this and uh, what are the likely numbers? Do we have any sense? Well, we have the anecdotal experience that we've had in talking with folks not only here in in Beijing, but in Shanghai and also in Wuhan, where they went through that 76-day lockdown. So let me first frame, Julia, for you what the premier has come out to say, and that is that they're not setting that target GDP for the year. He's citing the uncertainty not only here in China, but with the global economic market. So going forward, though, they do have this rather aggressive fiscal policy and the stimulus idea of $500 billion going into effect. The question will be, is it coming in a little bit too late? And I say that because of some of the small businesses that we spoke with, particularly within places like Wuhan, that have said not only are they not able to open because of certain restrictions, but now financially they feel like they will never open again. So this $500 billion, the way that's going to be split up, we know $140 billion, according to the premier, will go into some tax cuts, some rent reductions, and then they're going to issue some special treasury bonds. And those bonds will be fueling uh, really some of the infrastructure projects that they've been pushing forward with. And they think this will help towards that $9 million uh, person uh, increase in jobs that they're hoping to see as well. Uh, the infrastructure projects would be 5G, they would be railways, airports, and things that they think ultimately will bring China to moderate prosperity. That's something that they have been pushing through the start of this National People's Congress, which is essentially the rubber stamp parliament here. But going back to what the real concern is, and that is unemployment and questioning those numbers in particular, Julia, I can tell you just in in talking with folks, there have been real issues with not only businesses and small businesses in particular staying open, but then you have folks who have told me that childcare has been an issue because schools, for example, here in Beijing are not back in session. Other places it's starting to start classes once more. But uh, for parents, many of them have actually had to quit jobs if they're a two-parent working household. Uh, One of them has had to say essentially they can no longer go to work because they have to be home with their children. Now, in some cases, they've had grandparents to help out with that. But that kind of shows you some of just the the person-to-person issues that people are explaining as to why they're being affected by this economically. Yeah, just one of many issues they're facing, to your point, and I agree. Perhaps uh, too little in terms of stimulus, too late. We'll have to watch it. David Culver, thank you so much for that. Now, the U.S. Treasury Secretary says there's a strong likelihood another stimulus bill is needed, but says Congress should step back and allow aid already in the system to flow through to the economy. 
Joe Johns joins us now from Washington. Joe, there's a fair argument there to some degree. Less than half of the cash that's already been agreed is believed to be in the system. But are the Democrats and the Republicans coming closer to agreeing what more is required? Yes, and there's still going to have to be a lot more talk about that. The president made that pretty clear. He was asked us yesterday at the GM plant what he thought should be in another stimulus bill. And he was very vague. He pretty much avoided the question. Nonetheless, we know a couple things. We know, even though they're trying to restart the economy here in the United States, the fact of the matter is the unemployment picture is expected to repair much more slowly than some other parts, some other sectors, some other parts of the economy. And, uh, for example, the Congressional Budget Office suggests that we won't reach 8% unemployment until the fourth quarter of 2020. So uh, that's a big consideration. And what do you do about that? Well, number one, there are many people on Capitol Hill, mostly Republicans, who say they don't want to increase or maintain the so-called supercharged unemployment compensation that uh, has been provided thus far because it works as a disincentive for people to go back to their jobs. Uh, however they work it out, one thing is clear, there are some political considerations for everyone involved. And the President of the United States and his people over here are certainly worried about what the employment picture will be when we reach early November when the President has to face the voters. Uh, big consideration there as well. Uh, We know a couple other things. The White House and Republicans don't like the idea of allowing companies to be sued anytime anybody wants to as a result of a customer or a business person or whatever getting um, coronavirus. So they're talking about liability limitations. And uh, the president, of course, has said he'd like to see a payroll tax cut. Julia? Yes, which no one else agrees with. I think uh, Senate Majority... uh Leader Mitch McConnell called them lawyer vultures, I believe. And uh, yes, you have to incentivize people to get back into the workforce, but you have to keep them safe too. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that update there. All right, still to come here on First Move, Asia stock slide, Europe trying to pair earlier losses as China tightens its grip on Hong Kong. We'll be joined by the president of the city's American Chamber of Commerce. And Facebook allows staff to work permanently from home There may be a price to pay. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are now on track for a modestly higher open. We have been under pressure earlier today amid uh, fresh concerns that the worsening U.S.-China relationship could hurt the global economy during already deeply challenged times Take a look at what's going on for shares of Chinese internet giant Alibaba, lower pre-markets. It's reported earnings and revenues that beat expectations. Alibaba also seeing a steady recovery in consumer demand since March, which is good news. But I have to say the shares have been under pressure since midweek. Investors worried about a newly passed bill in the U.S. Senate that could force some publicly traded Chinese firms to delist from Wall Street if they can't prove their independence from Beijing. Adding further strain to the U.S.-China relationship, of course, everything we've been discussing with Hong Kong. Beijing set to impose a sweeping new security law there. President Donald Trump warned of a U.S. response if that were to happen. 
Joining us now is Tara Joseph, president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. Tara, always great to talk to you. I mentioned earlier on the show the pressure immediately on Hong Kong shares with investors nervous here. You share their alarm about where this could lead. Hi, Julia. And yes, it has been a very rough day for business and for everyone in Hong Kong, uh, with Beijing skirting Hong Kong to go ahead and talk about passing a security law very swiftly with very few details of how that's going to work. Now we're bracing for the second hit, which, as you mentioned, is the United States and what could be a very swift and strong reaction. So right now, Hong Kong is caught right in the middle of the U.S.-China trade friction, and that could be very, very difficult for business. Tara, you mentioned on a personal level, and we were talking about this with Ivan, people already reacting like this law has passed and that there's going to be far greater influence from China going forward. What does that mean for people wanting to come to Hong Kong, for businesses that operate there? You have to effectively assume you're part of the mainland. Well, it could start to feel like the absolute mainlandization of Hong Kong, but it's early to actually feel that every day yet. Right now, I could pick up my mobile phone and go onto Google or Facebook. There is now a creeping worry that we shouldn't take this for granted anymore, that things could actually change. Uh, people are rushing out to buy VPNs today, for example. Um, as far as uh, talent goes and the international community goes, we've already been seeing a slightly gloomy mood, worries about talent leaving Hong Kong. So if we see a really stringent reaction from the United States, a decertification of the special relationship between Hong Kong and the United States, or in particular, a severe national security law, and we see those repercussions very quickly, this could start to see people worrying a lot more, and it will put pressure on business. No question about it. It happens at a especially politically motivated moment in terms of reactions from the United States. We've already had condemnation from uh, Mike Pompeo, of course, Secretary of State. Tara, do you worry that we may see an ending of that special relationship? You've, you've mentioned it twice now. Uh, yes, I do worry about it. I think it's something that we need to watch for. Um, but the question in my mind here and for the business community is, Hong Kong is a win-win. It is a win for Beijing. It needs access to the international capital markets. It likes having a financial services center. And Hong Kong is a win for the United States and for companies here. So by seeing Hong Kong rolled over by the bus of geopolitical tensions is really not good for either side in terms of business in the long run. That said, we've reached a point where U.S.-China trade relations and the geopolitical relations are reaching a point of potential decoupling, and that could have very stiff consequences. Charles, what's the downside for China at this moment? They're looking at the situation in Hong Kong. They're saying, look, the Hong Kong authorities seemingly not controlling the situation. Time for us to act. What's the downside in your mind? Uh, there's a fair amount of downside. Uh, first of all, as a financial center, 
Hong Kong is very important for China. This is where you can change your money into an international currency from the tightly controlled yuan currency that China has. This is where China has access to capital markets. It's also a place where China has a meeting point to the rest of the world, and its reputation is being closely watched by how it handles Hong Kong, and that will hurt its reputation, even if it's not tarnished enough already. Yeah, you raise a great point. At a time of deep scrutiny over China's actions and behaviour, given what's going on in the coronavirus, this is just an additional layer. Tara Joseph, great That's to have right. you with us. Thank you so Thank much you. for that. The President of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. All right, we're counting down to the market open this morning. Stay with us. We're back after this. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to the show with the latest on our top story today, the plane crash in Pakistan. More than 100 people were on board a Pakistani International Airlines flight PK8303. It was a domestic flight on its way from Lahore to Karachi when it crashed into a residential area near the airport. The aviation ministry says the pilot reported technical issues shortly before the crash. CNN's Sophia Safi joins us now from Islamabad with more. Sophia, great to have you on the show. Tell us more. What, what other details do we have? Uh, well, Julia, I believe the most important information and some, the most tragic information that we've received just now from uh, a PIA spokesperson is that this flight uh, was actually a special flight that had started after the lockdown to get people back to their hometowns uh, for the Eid holidays, which begin today. Eid is a huge national holiday in Pakistan. It's the festival at the end of Ramazan. Pakistan had had a lockdown for about a strict lockdown for about two months and there were no domestic flights running. Uh, the only time that domestic flights actually restarted was just about a week ago. So we do know uh, that this flight crashed uh, into a residential area. We know that there, we don't know uh, much information about the death toll, about survivors. There is not much information regarding that. Uh, we have been told by the military that there is an ongoing search and rescue operation within uh, that residential area, which, uh, Julia, is actually quite close to the airport. It's it's a heavily packed urban area full of high-rise buildings close to the airport, uh, full of people who were generally just staying in because of the fear of COVID-19. So uh, it's a situation that's still unfolding. We're still waiting to hear more about what's actually caused it, what kind of death toll there is, and uh, what lies ahead in terms of flights uh, reoperating or continuing to operate uh, within the country since you know they were already uh, flying at a lower capacity. Julia? We're already uh, looking at quite extensive damage to, uh, to buildings there where it seems so uh, we believe that the plane came down. Sophia, you mentioned that obviously we've been in a period there of lockdown due to fears over, over the COVID virus. So I'm just looking at, at people now trying to help those that are injured and some of them have covers over their mouths, some are wearing masks. Many aren't at this stage. The, the recovery efforts here clearly complicated by the fact that this is another nation and a, and a city fighting against COVID-19. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, Karachi, it is one of the most populated cities in the world, the most populated city in Pakistan. Uh, it's the most affected city by COVID-19. It had the highest number of deaths. Uh, the medical health services in that city, the hospitals had already been stretched. Uh, we've been told by the Ministry of Health that all hospitals uh, are at high alert. There's a state of emergency, but you must understand that hospitals have already been at a state of high alert because of uh, the coronavirus situation in the country. So, you know, you have a situation where health services are already stretched and, you know, there has there might be cases because this crash has happened in a residential area where we will see casualties which are might not just from the plane itself, but from people who were living in those buildings uh, where the plane crashed. Yeah, it's uh, devastating. 99 passengers, eight crew members on board. A plane crash there, as you can see, in Karachi. Sophia, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, and we will continue to keep our viewers updated on this. Sophia Safi in Islamabad. Stay safe. Of course, as I mentioned, we'll have more on this breaking news story throughout the day here on CNN. For now, an update once again on what we're seeing. U.S. stock markets are open. We're slipping slightly, as you can see, in early trading. This ahead of the long Memorial Day weekend. Once again, all eyes on the Chinese Parliament too. that meeting in Beijing, where officials have announced fresh stimulus. But they're also pushing through a tough new security bill that would further limit Hong Kong's freedoms. An immediate response here in the United States, where the Senate will consider pushing officials who carry out punishing officials who carry out the crackdown. All this, of course, through uh, refracted fierce economic rivalries between the U.S. and China. The co-chair of Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio, said this week that China's power is, quote, rapidly rising and the, the United States is, quote, in relative decline. Longtime Chinese critic Carl Bass, the founder and chief investment officer at Hyman Capital Management, joins us now. Carl, always great to have you on the show. You've long been warning and saying that you're concerned about the situation in Hong Kong. Do you expect action from the United States, perhaps a, a removal of the special relationship that Hong Kong now shares? Yeah, uh Great to be here, Julia. I I, I don't I, I can't imagine how uh, w once Beijing uh, uh, extrajudicially implements uh, their own laws on top of the basic laws in Hong Kong, it, it basically strips the autonomy uh, away from from the Hong Kong region that Beijing agreed to when they signed the the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984. That's a UN filed document uh, that Beijing is now walking away from. Uh, and, you know, they're walking away about 27 years early. They promised to leave Hong Kong uh, sufficiently autonomous until 2047, kind of the 50-year deal that they're abrogating about 27 years early. I'd like to go back to a comment you just made, Julia, which I find to be really interesting. You know, um, I think the world kind of takes, and especially the financial world, takes Ray Dalio's comments at face value. And nobody asks him who his largest investor is. You know, one of Ray Dalio's largest investors, from from what the market knows, uh, is China's government. And so for Ray Dalio to be the the official uh, spokesperson in the U.S. of, let's say, the macroeconomic community, when China is one of his biggest investors, claiming that China is a rising power and that the U.S. is just in a secular decline. I think I think the journalists that interview Ray Dalio should ask him um, how much money China has invested in his funds. 
You think he has a vested interest in suggesting that the Chinese will rise relative to the United States? Yeah, the way that the Chinese work is they, they enrich a few people and those people become evangelical about the positive attributes of China. I'm, I'm, look, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of well known in market circles. I don't know this for an absolute fact because I'm not an investor in Bridgewater, nor am I uh, a close friend of Ray's. But uh, it's known that, that five, six billion dollars of China's uh, government money is invested in the Bridgewater funds. And uh, Ray Dalio, of course, here isn't, isn't here to defend himself either. But you make a very valid point that does there need to be greater scrutiny of investment in China? Chinese companies coming into the United States and trying to raise money, listed companies. It's a move that the U.S. Senate is looking at. I know you're in favor of this. Should this be enacted into law? Yeah, and Julia, I, I want to be clear. I'm in favor of the playing field being leveled and U.S. investors being protected. And so right. this, isn't a, this isn't an ejection of specific Chinese companies. What this is, is we need to raise our audit standards and basically uh, have any international company that wants to raise money in the U.S., either through stocks or bonds, uh, they, should, they should adhere to U.S. law. Uh, right now, that's not the case. And, and China is the worst offender, I'll call it 90% of the offenses or more are Chinese companies. So we should allow them to either uh, raise their standards to meeting US law, or they, should be, uh, they shouldn't be allowed to raise money here. I mean, this is, this is the job of the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US to protect US investors. Level playing field makes sense. Level playing field in terms of access to Chinese resources and investment in that country is also a fair argument to make, but it simply doesn't happen. How do you want to see this relationship evolve and how do you think it does as we head towards a presidential election in the United States? Because the rhetoric right now and even the actions are flying thick and fast between the U.S. and China. Yeah, I mean, Julia, it's uh, it's fun. They're fundamentally incompatible, right? We are we are the land of freedom and liberty and democracy and and call it fair trade. Uh, And they they run a heavy handed communist dictatorship. Uh, where they repress their people for the benefit of the state. I mean, those two ideologies are fundamentally incompatible. And Martin Lee, uh, one of the pro-democracy protesters, or not even protesters, the pro-democracy leaders of Hong Kong, he's 81 years old, was just arrested at his house a couple of weeks ago. He's the author of the basic law in Hong Kong. And in 1989, he predicted that one day this relationship between, let's say, China and Hong Kong uh, this one country, two systems ideology, which now we're seeing is changing to one country, one system. He predicted long ago that this would fail because those ideologies are just conflicting with one another. And um, now we're seeing uh, the crucible uh, of those two world forces butting heads in, a, in the region of Hong Kong. And I think that that doesn't bode well for Taiwan uh, and it doesn't bode well for the relationship between these communist dictatorships and the rest of the the Western uh, world. Uh, I, I think this relationship will continue to devolve. And I, I really don't think whether under President Trump or President Biden, it's going to change. I think it's only going to, to um, devolve going forward. Hong Kong is uh, ground zero, I guess, for the ideological clash that you're talking about here between a communist system and the foundations of democracy. Where does that leave Hong Kong? I know you're incredibly bearish anyway in your 
fund is positioned that way. But what reaction do you want to see from the international community? Because it's not just about the United States. There are many countries around the world at this moment that are very frustrated with China and their handling of, of COVID-19. What should the response be? Well, uh, you, you, I have to unpack your questions. Uh, there, those were, there were many questions there, but number one- I apologize. Uh, you, know, you, you know, you call you call us bearish. I call us realistic about uh, the, the situation between uh, China, Hong Kong, and, and, the, and the West. So as we all know, Hong Kong uh, basically has, has a couple of agreements signed. The, the, the definitive agreement for the governance of the region is the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984. And, and if you think back, Julia, I'd like to draw a few historical parallels. Um, when Deng Xiaoping was negotiating with Margaret Thatcher, uh, trying to get Hong Kong and the Kowloon area uh, back under Chinese rule, this was in the early 1980s. That's when the Hong Kong currency collapsed 50% versus the dollar and the pound. Uh, when rumor got out that China wanted to take Hong Kong back after Hong Kong had enjoyed uh, English law uh, and British rule for over a century, uh, the, the investors in the region started to panic. And that's what forced that action, that, those discussions, forced the Hong Kong monetary authorities to peg their currency to the dollar. That was 36 years ago. Mm. When they handed Hong Kong back to the British in 1997, you remember July 1st, 97 was the handover. July 2nd, 97 was when the Thai bot devalued and the Asian currency crisis happened. It was money leaving Southeast Asia, again, because China was coming, becoming uh, more, uh, they, had, they were taking ownership of Hong Kong. Here we are today with China acting belligerently and, and abrogating contracts that they've signed, like the government does. Uh, and, and here we are, you're gonna see a huge uh, uh, flight of capital out of Southeast Asia, given uh, China's uh, uh, actions in the last few days. And on top of the uh, already damaged economy as a result of uh, COVID-19 and the protest before, triple challenge, yeah, you, I think. Yeah, Carl, I have to wrap you up there, but we will get you back, I promise. It's always great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Carl Bass, Founder and Chief Investment Officer at Heyman Capital Management. Great to have you with us. All right, we're going to take a break. Welcome back to First Move and to Brazil now, where President Jair Bolsonaro has downplayed the coronavirus as a little flu. But inside hospitals, healthcare workers are struggling with an overwhelming number of patients and watching their colleagues fall victim to the virus themselves. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh takes us behind the hospital doors to show us the front lines of what one doctor calls the worst thing we've ever faced. Stay with us. Sao Paulo. The biggest city and hottest spot for the coronavirus in Brazil. The deathly quiet outside Emilio Ribas Hospital. No new patients arriving on ambulances is not a good sign. In fact, it spells the worst. Because this huge ICU has run out of beds. What's startling here is that the peak is possibly well over a week away from hitting Brazil. And already this enormous ICU is full. And in between the beds there is growing sense of anxiety, fear, really, about what lies ahead. Doctors here have heard President Jair Bolsonaro dismiss the disease as a little flu, but presidential platitudes haven't protected them. And one of their nurses died two days ago. Inside this room, 
is one of the team's doctors on a ventilator and another has tested positive this day. Never before it touches, uh, touched us like this, this, this time because we have never lost a colleague in this intensive care before. Yes, definitely it's not a, a flu. It's the worst thing we have ever faced in, in our professional lives. Are you worried for your life here? Yeah. Yes. It's a virus that stifles and silences, but suddenly here there is commotion. One patient, a woman in her 40s, has had cardiorespiratory failure. The doctor's heavy pulse is the only thing keeping her alive. But after about 40 minutes, it's clear she can't survive. The body is cleaned, the tubes that kept her alive disconnected, and she's wheeled out. And the space will be needed. It all happens so fast, but leaves a long scar. A scene so distant from presidential rallies, masks now common much of the time, but wealth put before health. We have to be brave, he says, to face this virus. Are people dying? Yes, they are, and I regret that. But many more are going to die if the economy continues to be destroyed because of these lockdown measures. The holes here in the hills above Sao Paulo are not dug ready for a recession, though. Endless fresh graves for the dead, who also seem to never stop arriving. In Brazil, the numbers are already staggering, and it's clear it's not the entire picture because testing simply isn't as widespread as they would like. But everywhere you go, you see that people understand this is just the beginning. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Mm, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. We heard from AstraZeneca CEO yesterday about the billion dollar plus investment from the US government into vaccine research. Well, I can tell you that the Oxford University research is moving on to the next phase of human trials. Our Clarissa Ward had a look at the details. It is the oldest university in the English speaking world. But Oxford University may soon be better known for taking a big step forward in the global race to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. Graduate student Dan McAteer is one of more than a thousand volunteers who signed up to be subjects in the first round of human trials. All participants had to be between 18 and 55 and in excellent health. Half were given the experimental COVID-19 vaccine and half were given a control vaccine. I, like all of us, felt very much uh, impotent and powerless in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so I thought, right, this sounds like maybe I can contribute in some way. Mother of two, Lydia Guthrie, had her inoculation three weeks ago. I did have a few moments beforehand of thinking, whoa, you know, I might be injected with this experimental vaccine. That sounds like something out of a science fiction film. Um, but we're all having to make decisions about risk. Guthrie says she experienced some side effects, similar to a mild flu. Next week, she will go back for her first blood test. We have an e-diary system. So every day I get an email as a prompt to log in 
and complete a short questionnaire about my health and well-being. Um, I also complete a questionnaire about my daily activities. The vaccine's developers have made some bold predictions, saying it could be mass-produced as early as September. But some experts have cast doubt on that optimism, pointing to test results on monkeys. While none of the vaccinated animals suffered from pneumonia after being injected with COVID-19, they did still contract the virus. Jenner Institute director Professor Adrian Hill says the data has been misconstrued. We are very confident that the result in those monkeys was as good as we could have hoped for. Is the goal of this vaccine to create immunity or is it simply to prevent the worst symptoms? So I think it'll either be one or the other. It doesn't work at all or it works against infection and disease. That's generally how vaccines work. McAteer concedes he will be disappointed if the vaccine doesn't work. If you are part of something and you've given it your time and it's been a subject of a bit of anxiety, of course, because there are risks attached, of course you want your vaccine to succeed. But fundamentally, we just need a vaccine to succeed or even better, multiple vaccines to succeed. In the end, the real race is against the virus and time. Some incredible science there. Now, before we go, I want to show you a fitting farewell for a nurse who beat coronavirus here in New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Nurse Rose to go home. That was the moment Rose Japitana, who's wearing white, left the Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx to cheers from other medical workers and well wishes. A big round of applause from all of us here at First Move for our medical heroes around the world, rightly rewarded. And the fact, the battle's not over. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, stay well, and have a good weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.